I think that Amazon is less vindictive and participant to retribution than people might assume. I actually think it's just like all they're trying to do is have the whole world automated. And so I don't think they have even have this emotional aspect. You know, the bigger you are as a company, your capacity to do bad tracks with your capacity to do good. Welcome to Day 2, a new podcast about Amazon and the future of everything. I'm GeekWire editor Todd Bishop, and I'm joined here today by our resident expert on the podcast, Jason Boyce. Hey, Jason. Hey, Todd. I can't tell you how thrilled I am to be here on our very first episode of the Day 2 podcast. What an exciting journey we're about to embark on and just couldn't be happier. For folks who have not heard Jason yet on any of our recent GeekWire podcasts, he is a former Amazon seller who runs the e-commerce consultancy Avenue 7 Media and co-authored the book, The Amazon Jungle. And he's going to be our collaborator on the Day 2 podcast as we bring in a wide variety of guests to talk about issues ranging from Amazon retail to logistics to the future of work, robotics, e-commerce. It's going to be a fascinating journey on this podcast, and we've got a great guest to join us for our first episode. Peter Daring is the CEO of Peak Design, and his company recently shared a video of a problem they've been having. This is the Everyday Sling by Peak Design, and this is the Everyday Sling by Amazon Basics. It looks suspiciously like the Peak Design Everyday Sling, but you don't have to pay for all those needless bells and whistles, like years of research and development. Instead, you just get a bag designed by the crack team at the Amazon Basics Department. Yeah, keep coming that data. Okay, I'll get right on it, boss. We'll stop right there. That everyday sling, it's a hot seller. Let's basic this bad boy. Right on. Peter, can you give a little more background on this situation that you encountered at Peak Design with Amazon? Well, hell, I think the video does a decent job of explaining it. I mean, the fact of the matter is we made a pretty cool camera bag. Sold a lot of them on Amazon. I think they noticed and they decided, well, we could probably make one of those and make it significantly cheaper. So that's what they did. Jason, this is a problem that you are intimately familiar with. I know a little bit about this, Peter. And I have to tell you, when I watched your video, first of all, it was brilliantly done. And I had like three waves of emotions come over me as an old seller myself who has experienced the very same thing that you and your partner have experienced, which is Amazon deciding to be fast and loose with stealing other people's uh, products. And so first I laughed and I thought, what a brilliant production of this video to get people to chuckle about this with the googly eyes, which are great. <laughs> it was engaging and funny. And then I, I started to have like these old memories. I, I, and, and I think I might've shed a little bit of a tear going, this is, this is funny, but this is also very sad. And then I transitioned immediately to like bald-faced rage. Mm -hmm. Like how dare you, Amazon, take away the hard work and creativity from the seller community that is so important to what makes Amazon what it is today. And so those were my emotions, sure. Peter, right? Yeah. And I've been in your shoes. 
I wasn't smart enough to do what you did. And I don't know how many millions of viewers you have on this YouTube video. When I last checked yesterday, it was like 3 million viewers. You know, I would love to hear what your emotions were when you started to notice this very similar product to yours popping up in bestseller status on Amazon. Well, the, I think it's the right question to be asking. Uh, the emotions are, are, are really a big part of this. And I, I never quite encountered the bald face rage that you speak of, which I think is surprising a lot of people. You know, if you read the YouTube comments or whatever, people think that I'm so pissed about this. And the fact is I'm not, I'm, I'm, I'm more like, you know, and I think the attitude of the video and the way I've talked about it so far, and even like when it first came in is like, Oh, you dirty bastards. You know, it was just like, you pathetic little unbelievable, I can't believe you even, you even took the trapezoidal logo patch and put Amazon Basics on it. Like, have you no pride, you know? And by the way, the answer is no. <laughs> they, they don't, but, they, but that's not to say that they don't have some principle behind what they're doing. And I, I think you're going to find that it might be a little bit surprising in this conversation um, I, despite having a business that is entirely different than Amazon, this is, I, you know, I have been working hard at putting myself in, in their shoes here. And the other shoes that I put myself in are the consumer shoes, right? I bought an immersion blender from Amazon a couple weeks ago, and there were 10 of them that were nearly identical. And I don't know who came up with the first one. Was it Hamilton beach? Was it, uh, whatever, you know, maybe it was Cuisinart. Somebody came up with that design at a certain point and it was a good design. And hopefully that company had a strong enough brand to make money off it for a considerable amount of time. They had sort of a head start and peak design came up with a, a you know, a beautiful shape and a layout and an aesthetic for a camera bag, as well as, some details that are simply more expensive than Amazon basics is going to be willing to put into their bag. Some of that's environmental materials. Some of it's just metal touch points, the, the finer points of the bag, right? It, frankly, every single product category has the real McCoy and you've got the generic knockoff. And the fact that that happened so directly with the peak design everyday sling is first and foremost a nod to the prevalence of the everyday sling and the fact that it's a great camber bag and that's why it became the bestseller. And the reason that I'm a little bit less mad than you might think is that it's not that anyone who opts to buy that version, which oscillates somewhere between $20 and $40, whereas we charge $99, the people who are buying that don't think that they're getting a peak design bag. They understand fully they're getting a knockoff version of that. And part of what you get when you're purchasing peak design is <laughs> everything that surrounds it. Sure, it's going to last longer, but it's prettier. It says something about you as a consumer, like I'm buying the quality thing. And in my own life, sometimes I buy the quality products and sometimes I buy the generic products. And so if, if only to avoid my own hypocrisy, I don't boil over in rage at what Amazon is doing, but that's why we took the approach of like, all right, let's make fun of this and let's do it as, you know, let's do it in a way that is aware of the totality of factors as possible. And I think that's the result of the video that you see. 
Well, and to your point, Peter, I wonder if one of the reasons you're not as upset as you might be is that your campaign was so effective last <laughs> week that your sales are through the roof. <laughs> that's not been disappointing. Uh, that's, <laughs> that is, yeah, <laughs> definitely we turned this into a win. So I'll, I'll grant you that. But I do want to point out what you're saying, that there is a tradition in retail, in product manufacturing, where there are certain styles that become popular. And yes, one brand may popularize them. And by the way, we did offer Amazon an opportunity to participate in this conversation, and they declined. Mm -hmm. But I am here wearing my 206 Collective, so I am literally walking in Amazon's shoes as I'm talking to you. Those are their Allbirds knockoffs. Mm -hmm. But they would say, hey, this is the trend. This is the general direction that camera bags are going. But here's where I think that falls short. You referenced it, Peter. It's the trapezoidal patch the mm -hmm. logo. And that to me is where I think they've gotten themselves into hot water. And it may be the reason they're not actually participating in this conversation or issuing a direct statement. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I think that's a fair point. I, they, you know, like imagine yourself in the shoes of that, of that designer. Think about those Allbirds shoes, right? The 206 collective. It was also you know, a trendy thing to reference an area code 10 years ago, back when we were first doing that in like the 4015 or the 312 beers in Chicago, you know, like Amazon, they're, they're always going to be playing not second fiddle, fourth or fifth fiddle, right? Until they decide to innovate for themselves in this actual space, which would be a, which would be a wholly different type of business. So yeah, I, it, the, the the question, I mean, there's two questions at hand. Is the trapezoidal logo patch too far because it invades our intellectual property? And the answer to that is no. We didn't we didn't trademark that. You know, we anytime we bring a product to market, we have to make a lot of decisions about how much intellectual property we're going to develop alongside this thing. It's trademarks, it's copyrights, it's it's patents. It's both design and utility patents. And funny enough, on this five liter sling, we didn't get a, a excuse me a design patent. We got it on the ten liter, um, and we got it on the everyday. Uh, we, we got design patents on the everyday backpack and the everyday messenger, and trademarks on those terms: everyday messenger, everyday backpack. But we didn't do it on the sling, which is kind of hilarious. And I suspect Amazon knew that, you know, when they were deciding how close can we get without. Um, actually stepping on intellectual property because even though they're Amazon, you know, people in the comments assume we didn't go after them because they're Amazon. That's not true. It's because they successfully avoided the intellectual property that we do have and just made a clear knockoff. Um, we would go after Amazon. For instance, if they had knocked off capture, that's the clip that launched peak design. It's this mechanism that allows you to clamp a, a SLR to a backpack strap. Now we've got a utility patent there. And I think there's good reasons why there's no, why there's no Amazon basics camera clip. And that's because we've got strong IP around it. Frankly, like is what they're doing dirty? Is it cheap? Is it kind of bottom of the barrel scrubbing? Yep. I think it's all those things, but I don't think it's illegal. And I guess the, the, the larger conversation that we, that we need to have, which is more of a societal conversation and more of a conversation for elected representatives is, is it too much? Are, are they too big? Are they 
are they too good at these forms of businesses such that it becomes anti-competitive? And that is well beyond my pay grade. You know, Peter, another thing is you've seen the television commercials where Amazon gets on TV and talks about how great they are for small businesses, how it provides a venue, fulfillment, marketing, et cetera, for small businesses that uh, to, to grow and to thrive. Do those commercials ring hollow now based on your recent experience? Frankly, they don't yet, at least. So Amazon, like we've said, is a tremendous selling partner of ours. Now, it only became that way once we took a very hard step of saying to all of our retailers, because, you know, we have... We act as our own distributor in the United States. That means we sell not only to B&H Photo and REI and Best Buy, but every mom and pop camera store around. And so those mom and pop camera stores, as part of their business model, when Amazon came along, they're like, oh, gosh, the internet, we need to become online resellers. And so they go to the marketplace, but it is really inefficient for us to sell product to them and them to sell it on, on the Amazon marketplace. And what you had is then... Instead of, you know, a physical store who's competing with the other physical stores in the area, you have every mom and pop competing on Amazon and, and the, the price for something is $80 and they know that they're not supposed to lower the price, but like they're not selling any because the pie is divided up by 40 sellers and then they drop the price a nickel and then someone else drops it a nickel. And it's this weird, ugly form of price erosion that can happen. So that is when Amazon is lousy for brands. And I think it is a race to the bottom for the mom and pop sellers who are hoping that they can have a slice of that pie. It's just, it's, it's not a reality. It is not sustainable. Now, if you're a brand like Peak Design, Amazon is a wonderful marketplace because now that we don't allow any of our other resellers to sell on Amazon, and we do that by just saying, hey, guys, we really don't want you to sell on Amazon. And if you're going to, we're going to stop selling product to you. But this allows us to maintain our accurate sales prices. And as a result, have a pretty clean, like uh, we, you know, we have a peak design store on Amazon that's full of our product. And our product is well represented. It's beautiful. It ships to people prime. Like it's a great option. So if you're fortunate enough to be a, a, a brand and you do Amazon right, believe it or not, I, 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 it's not ringing hollow for me yet, Jason. You know, if, if they copied all of our designs to the point where customers no longer found value in buying the Peak Design brand, I'm sure I would have a much different answer for you. But I don't think that this one crack at it um, does that thoroughly enough. Look, I, I think you've nailed the strategy for being a successful Amazon seller these days, which is to be the brand, be in control of your own listing so that you don't become part of this, this buy box mm -hmm. algorithm that erodes your price and then it's a race to the bottom. Peter, personally, I've lived that and I know what it was like. And I transitioned from a reseller to a private label brand and the difference is palpable. Uh, having your own brand and going forward with the strategy that you have, I think is, is noble. And I think it's the way forward on Amazon. I completely agree with you. You, you said something earlier that I keep, I keep playing back in my head. It's not unusual for a premium brand like yours to have knockoffs. It's not unusual for, in the traditional sense, a brick and mortar retail store to have the premium brand and maybe even have 
a cheap knockoff. Mm-hmm. The difference is if I'm in a brick and mortar store and I touch Peak Design's product and I look at the quality and I move the zippers, I can really tell when I pick up the knockoff product, I can tell the difference in quality, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. I can feel the difference in quality. Can you see the difference in quality if, you know, take off your product design hat for a minute and pretend you're just an everyday camera customer who's looking for the best looking new bag out there. Mm -hmm. Do you think that Amazon has an advantage compared to the brick and mortars um, because of this phenomenon? Is it harder for someone to see the quality on on an online listing than it is in a brick and mortar? Uh, uh, Without question, it's harder. Um, There is... Totally agree with what you're driving out there, but this is the world we live in now. It's, you know, it's mostly done online. And so it is incumbent upon us then to create the collateral, which signifies to the customer, you are not just getting a bag with this, you are buying into the peak design ecosystem. And along with it comes a certain aspirational element, you know, and like some things are just simply utilitarian and some things carry more with it. And each customer has a different threshold for when and where they want the aspirational product and when they just need something that gets the job done. Peter, based on what you're saying, I would not have guessed that you would have come out with this video last week because you sound pretty much fine with it. <laughs> Was it purely a... Was this, did this come from your CMO? Was this purely a sales and marketing tactic? No, it wasn't a sales and marketing tactic. It came from us. Like we were talking about that this morning. It was, it was almost like catharsis, right? It's, I mean, I'm not to, to, to say that it's not illegal or morally corrupt. Doesn't mean that I don't think it's a shot across the bow. I mean, it's absolutely like a big old slap to peak design. I mean, it's, you know, it's, it both signifies like, okay, you guys are important enough to knock off, but it's also like, we're going to be really egregious about it. Well, we're going to fight, right? We're going to be egregious about our response. And the way that we're going to do that is we're going to take the high road and just pave that road all over your face. So that's, uh, that's where the response came from. By the way, Peter, I think there's a side business in here somewhere because I talk to sellers every day that have the same experience. And with your production ability, I think you could start your own YouTube channel on uh, sellers who've had their products copied. <laughs> Maybe your next product could be googly eyes for videos poking fun at <laughs> oh, Well, if you don't think that we've already thought of the up- going, going upscale on that, right? We're thinking like, spring loaded, like aluminum, uh, you know, like really nice aluminum, probably a setting to change the amount of light transmission that occurs. Cause those things begin to have some problems there. So, so yeah, no, that's, that's kind of hilarious. If, if we didn't have a very, very thick product roadmap right now, we'd probably be working on the premium version of googly eyes. Cause I'm pretty sure we made them sell out for people who haven't seen the video yet. When you watch it, you'll understand what we're talking about. There are two characters there and Peter is one of them. You, yes, I'm the subordinate. Yes, who are essentially the Amazon Basics team in parody. And yes, and the the other one is my uh, my main man Joe Calendar. He joined the team about a year ago. He's a documentary filmmaker and one funny son of a gun. And really, you talk about production value. Yeah, we actually do have pretty great in house production value. I mean, extremely good. But that was less about production value, and that's just about having hired funny people. I do want to point out that not only is the trapezoidal patch, the logo the same, but 
as you point out, Amazon initially named its bag Everyday Sling, the same exact name as the Peak Design camera bag. I wonder how much of this discussion is about policy versus just sheer incompetence. I mean, at some point, it feels just ham-handed what they did versus corrupt. Uh it's certainly, although if I was trying to knock it off, I would probably, you know, search terms matter in all the algorithm stuff. And so that's probably why they did that. Again, which I consider like it's super aggressive. Like I don't operate my business that way. We don't, we don't, not even close to it. But I'm also like, I'm just like, other people can choose to do that. And, and it is literally taking the low road. You know, it's a well-trafficked path. Peter, I talk to sellers all the time. Um, and by the way, I, I had a chance to talk to Annie Palmer of CNBC, mm. who, who, who wrote a story. And I know, I, I know that uh, she interviewed you. She was the one that told me that the name had been changed. And um, I was like, see, Annie, your, your work is, is making positive change in the world here. Um, but I, I talk to sellers every day where a reporter will come to me and they will say, I'm hearing this happening in the seller community. Can you help me get in contact with the seller who's willing to talk on the record about this? And you know what? Nine times out of 10, they say, Peter, no way. I'm not talking about that. I'm too afraid of having my listings permanently taken down. I'm too afraid of retribution from Amazon. Did that ever cross your mind before you hit the upload button on this amazing YouTube video? Um, slightly. I think that Amazon is less vindictive and participant to retribution than people might assume. I actually think it's just like all they're trying to do is have the whole world automated. And so I don't think they have even have this emotional aspect. I actually called up one of my buddies on the day it launched who works at Amazon. And I was, what I, what I was re relaying to him was a story where we had, um, we had a great year in 2019 with Amazon and we actually had an account rep, right? And his main job is he, he was actually helping us, you know, like it, it was nice to have a person to talk to, but he was also really trying to get us to sell ads and basically you know, we were doing such good organic growth and we're like, Hey, we'll buy some ads, but we're like, we like where the profit margins are at right now. And we don't really like to advertise that much. And he's just like, I really think you guys should advertise more. And we never did. And he did say, this is, this is somewhat curious, maybe even conspiratorial, but on his way out the door, he said, you guys had an amazing year this year. I don't think it's going to be this easy for you in 2020. And I don't know, like, I, I dropped that little breadcrumb here. I don't know what it means. I think that it is, um, I don't know. It's a curious little anecdote. Nice little camera bag you got there. It'd be a shame if something happened to <laughs> yeah, it. Yeah, totally. <laughs> totally. And I don't, I don't really know if you can connect those dots fairly, but certainly if you want to join the ranks of conspiracy, you can. But, but to be quite boring about it. I think that it's probably way more just algorithm and data driven. And, you know, the problems that we had in 2020, which indeed we really did, were more related to um, shipping, getting, getting products in there. But there was a global pandemic. And I think that, I, you know, I think that the, by far and away, the most innovative part of Amazon is their logistics, right? It's like the digital stuff. I'm 
mildly impressed by. It is the fact that prime shipping is now usually one day, right? And, and they saw the writing on the wall and they worked super hard on that tooth and nail in order to make that thing a reality. And I would be a lot less um, pumped about that if they hadn't been one of the early movers to go to $15 an hour. And I actually think that Amazon's capacity, you know, the bigger you are as a company, your capacity to do bad tracks with your capacity to do good. And um, I, I think that they... God, I hope Amazon takes a hard turn toward the environment and toward improving the, the, the life of the people who work in their fulfillment centers and their delivery people. And, you know, I, I, I hear a lot of stories about the quality of life in those fulfillment centers and like they're being tracked, you know, as if we're treating them like robots. I, I, I want to know a click down on that. Is that, I mean, I, I believe that they're being tracked. I mean, productivity tracking is for, for a type of repetitive work. Like it's almost like, of course you would want that when you juxtapose it with like this idea of human robot interface, it can become kind of creepy in a, in a obvious emotional way. But, um, at the end of the day, like it's actually helpful to know who's being a product productive employee and, and who's not, there are ways to make life better even from within that environment where you care about productivity. And the question is, are they simultaneously doing those things? And I don't know that because I think that, I think that the world seems more interested in selling the vision of uh, ugliness than, than they do, you know, ugliness sells far better than like, than like, Actually, 96% of employees represent, you know, a pretty happy work environment. And like, I, I'm always, maybe it's just this media environment of the last, I don't know, five, six years where I'm genuinely interested to know the other side of every single coin that gets tossed. So Amazon on the issue of the environment has come out with its climate pledge, which promises to be net zero carbon by 2040. And they've got others to sign up for that as well. Obviously, the entire issue of the workforce and unionization is a, a big one that's playing out now. Obviously, Amazon has its arguments on that side. But to your bigger point and to the topic of what we're discussing today, I did get a chance to ask Jay Carney, Amazon's senior vice president of public policy, the former White House spokesman for President Obama about these issues of private label products at the GeekWire Summit back in 2019. Another thing that's a misconception is that we're, we're monolithic. And as you know, because you know the business, uh, you know, the fastest growing part of our retail operation is third-party sellers. It's growing twice as fast as our uh, owned inventory retail. And that's empowering millions of small and medium-sized businesses around the world. Uh, you know, and uh, I think we have 200,000 of them who've, uh, you know, with revenue of over a million dollars. And, uh, you know, that, I think that's a great fact to point to when there are conversations about what the impact of a, a, of a business like Amazon is on small businesses. There's sort of these gray areas where Amazon's power can be perceived from the outside to be unfair. And I happen to be wearing the, the new Amazon 206 collectives that Allbirds has spoken out about and uh, that are very similar to their shoes. I realize these things aren't necessarily illegal or unethical, but they can be seen as unfair. On the issue of, of private label products, 
you know, of the big companies, retailers that you know in this country and around the world, we're the worst at it. We have the smallest percentage of our revenue that comes from private label, 1% of our revenue. There are, there are competitors out there, and you go to their stores or online, and it's 20, 50, 25, 38%, 80% of, of what they sell is private label. So, you know, the fact that we have, you know, we've made some investments and tried to get some traction on private label is only because we're trying to, we're listening to customers and hearing their feedback and trying to provide them products that they want. But uh, I don't want to knock the team that works on that, but if we're at 1%, we're, we're not exactly uh, you know, killing it in that area. But do you consider third-party retailers customers? Yes. So what do you say then when those customers are complaining that they feel like uh, you need to That be? we work our butts off every day uh, for them to yeah. make sure that they succeed as much as possible on Amazon, and the proof is in the numbers. They're growing twice as fast as our inventory. So it's, it's a completely in our DNA, but also in our interest to ensure that our small and medium-sized sellers succeed. And we work every day to, to help them succeed. Jason, I'm sure you have some thoughts on that. Uh, just one or two. <laughs> um, <laughs> yes. So I, I'm always fascinated when Amazon shares numbers because they like to talk about the numerator, not the denominator. Um, you know, is, is Mr. Carney talking about uh, how many private label sales as a percentage of GMV or as a percentage of the revenue that they report to um, to, to the SEC. And so if it's the latter, then that number is a, a fraction of what it actually should be. Can you explain that real fast? Sure. So Amazon, when they report their revenue numbers, uh, when Peter sells a product for $100, Amazon takes on average uh, 15, well, you're in clothing is probably 17%, right, Peter? $17 of a $100 sale is what they report to the SEC. But in fact, a $100 sale has been made on the Amazon.com platform. So we call that gross merchandise value, GMV. What's the total dollar of goods sold on the Amazon.com platform? Amazon doesn't report this. They're not required to legally. I think they should be required to legally, but they're not required. And I think there's a lot of obfuscation that happens when by not reporting that number. So that's the first piece. The second piece is this continued narrative that they are here to support the third-party seller as if it's a huge favor. There's two sides of this coin. I believe strongly that Amazon would not be what they are today without the hard work, the creativity, the capital, the grit of great third-party sellers like Peter and his company. They would not be what they are today. They will not be what they're going to become in the future without them. And so I'm on this sort of secret mission. My opinions are my own here, Todd. My secret mission is for Amazon to admit that and to not do tactics like what they did with Peter's company. He's a, he's 10 times more Zen than I am. P hmm. Peter, I, I love you, man. <laughs> You're awesome. You, your, your viewpoint of and, and your thoughts on what's what's happened here in terms of Amazon copying your 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 product is noble and I, I wish when I grow up I want to be more like you Peter it's it's really cool but it, but it really does piss me off right it really does piss me off that this group of sellers who are so important to the critical infrastructure of Amazon's success that whether it was an accident whether it was automated whether they outsourced this sort of copying to a Chinese factory or if it was a product manager in HQ1 who made this decision, none of, none of those make it okay. Mm -hmm. And it's got to stop. 
And, you know, so, so stop pushing these television commercials saying how great you are at the third party business. There's no question. There's millionaire third party businesses out there because Amazon's built a one of a kind platform. They can do something negative to a third party seller and not have any repercussions from that. Peter, if you and 10,000 other sellers or 20,000 other sellers, for example, mm-hmm. you want to combine together in a class action suit and say, hey, Amazon, you can't use my information to copy my product. You can't do it. Mm-hmm. You can't do it because you signed a forced arbitration clause to become a seller in the first place, and which I also think should be outlawed. Um, however, I would just like to see from Amazon, just own this more. Take better care of your seller community. You need people like Peter in order to continue to be to, to become and to stay the go-to e-commerce platform in the United States. You keep, you keep doing these things to these sellers. And you're asking for trouble. I think these are really good points. And part of me is thinking that, well, this, this happened with one of our products. There's actually an older product of ours. It's even, you know, it's V1 and it took them this long to come out with that, you know, and what is, of course, I'm, I'm worried about real risk to my business, right? If they end up knocking off everything that we have, and, 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 and the greater problem is if they do a, well, actually, I think they did a good job with this everyday sling. Like it's clear where they took corners. Um, it's not it, something like a bag has a little bit more, or at least one of our bags, right? There is a premium feel that comes from real attention to the details. And this does not pay attention to the details. Um, right. And I, what, I guess what, what I'm driving at is like, I hope I'm not being too uh, somewhere between either complacent or arrogant about the fact that like, it's actually really hard to knock off one of our things to the degree where you can't tell the difference, right? Like it's just a long ways off from that. It's like, that's clearly a cheaper version, but if they start to step on our real intellectual property, you know, if they make the Amazon basics travel tripod, which um, has a very unique shape, incredible features. Like you might see my opinion change on this, depending on how, you know, how close does Icarus get to the sun? Um, I'll be, I'll, I'll be curious. Jason, to a point that you made earlier, Amazon has insisted that they do not use individual third party seller data to compete However, a Wall Street Journal investigation that came out last year explained how a dominant seller in an individual category can make it to where they're de facto using that seller's data because they might look at that category and and do it that way. Peter, do you have a sense for whether that's what happened here? Well, I, I like the the funny thing is I I don't I can't say, but I I know with your Google Peak your, your Google camera bag, right? And Peak design bubbles to the very top on the most reviewed bag, the highest ratings. Like there are all sorts of ways to go to B&H photo video. Which one are people buying the most of? And in the premium bags, it's by a long shot peak design. And so it doesn't take a genius and it doesn't take an algorithm to know that like this is a great bag. So whether they're shortcutting their way to that information by just, I mean, my God, that has to be easy data at hand, right? Like I would think that they couldn't help but have that data. Camera bags, which one sells the most? They know how many cam- we are selling. 
You know, Todd, I, I had this conversation with Annie Palmer, who, who, who wrote an article on, on Peter's story. And I reminded her of a story that I had told her previously, where I had been in the room, in headquarters, in Seattle, in a, in a room full of sports and outdoor category folks, four or five of them, uh, 90% of them had been a third-party category manager. They'd been a third-party seller category manager. And we used to have this running joke at my previous life and my previous business that, oh, the next new category manager has been spun up. It's time for us to train the new guy, right? The third-party seller. We were sharing our industry knowledge, our product knowledge, and our category knowledge with a third-party seller. They would do that job as a category manager, as an Amazon employee for a period of time. And that was either six months or 18 months. It was never more than that. And then they got hired as the buyer as the product developer. And I remember sitting in the room and they were showing me, I, I was actually being asked to source some products for them. So this was long before they started having their own relationships with factories. And they push a piece of paper across the table to me and say, hey, can you get this made? I'm like, yeah, you can get this made, but why, why do you think this is going to be a good seller? Uh, wink, wink. They're elbowing each other, you know, uh, well, you know, there's a, there's a distinct wall between third party and one party, but we know that this is the best seller. I'm like, well, how do you know? And they started sharing metrics or they would say, I was, I was just the category manager. I was the category manager three months ago. I know this is a top seller. I remember leaving with my, with my brother going, this is messed up. You know, and that was a long time ago. We're probably talking 2000, 2008, 2007, Maybe. But to Peter's point, what's to stop anybody from saying, hey, this is obviously a product that's leading the category just based on external data. Do they really need internal data for that? It's a, it's a great point. They shouldn't need internal data if they know what they're doing. But the Wall Street Journal article is telling us that they are. And they are using it. And they're not supposed to be using it. And there's a culture that doesn't stop this from happening. And I think that the amount of data, Todd, is the real problem right? The amount of data that Amazon has on Peter's products is infinitely greater than any other marketplace in history, right? They know who the audience is. They know who the customer is. They know who's clicking on the product and not buying the product, right? And they know how to serve those folks. And so I think from that, from that perspective, the amount of data that they, they have access to or, or they're privy to is much more than someone walking into a, a retail store chain, seeing XYZ brand, brand X, which is clearly the retailer's brand next to a branded item. The amount of data that they would collect in that scenario versus what's happening in today's 21st century age. Right? So- it's an advantage, clearly, that they have. What makes it an unfair advantage versus just plain an advantage? Is it illegal? Probably not. But I remember taking the call from Amazon third-party seller category managers saying, we want you to sell your products on Amazon. And I remember saying to them, yeah, but you're going to copy all my stuff. You're going to start selling my stuff, and then I'm going to be out of business. And they said, no, we're not going to do that right? There's an element of trust, an element of ethics, and an element of humanity that when you say that and you believe someone, and then the opposite happens, which was my case, three different phases of my career as an Amazon seller, where you say, that's messed up. Even if it's not illegal, is it right? Mm -hmm. No. And, and I go back to my point, Amazon wouldn't be what it is today, Peter, without sellers like you. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And why would they, why would they do anything to upset 
that relationship. I don't get it. I don't understand that piece, right? I do want to point out quickly that last year, Amazon said that its own internal investigation into the details of that Wall Street Journal story found no violations of its company policy that forbids employees of its private label division from using individual third-party seller data to gather competitive intelligence for launching its own products. Hmm. The greater questions about like, is it right? Is it illegal? I think the answer to that is currently no. Is it right? Or is it wrong? Or is it good for the world? I think that these are important questions to be answering. And to be clear, I'm not necessarily, um, I think it's a really long and nuanced discussion to understand whether this is good for the world. Like the rationale, I imagine if you're Amazon, look, they, the margins that they're making on that everyday, their former everyday sling camera bag have got to be tiny. You know, I think that they were making more certainly from the peak design version. Um, oh, clearly they're making more money. But remember, Peter, you have to pay them 17 points of every sale that they don't have. Well, to no, that's, put, that's what right? I, yeah, that's right. So our hundred dollar right. bag, they're making $17 off of. Their bag that, you know, let's say, let's say they're offering it for $30 right now. I think it probably cost them six bucks to make it. I, all the shipping to and fro, probably another, I don't know, probably another six to $8 before it's all, all said and done. Um, you know, I guess that, that kind of puts it on about par. They're probably making just about as much. As they are from our at 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 what fifty five sixty five dollars lower retail well, right but but that yeah. is pure benefit to the consumer and so you have to yeah. consider that when yeah. well, I mean minus the fact that they're not getting the brand and that's when we enter into the discussion is it good for the world here's the real risk I completely agree with everything that you're saying you put a ton of creative energy and time and development through part of your R&D process mm -hmm. that was really critical to making a best-in-class product, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Amazon's R&D was receive and duplicate. Mm -hmm. That's what they did, mm -hmm. right? And that's just not okay. Sure, that's good short-term strategy for Amazon. Okay, we can run this product for a few years and make more money than we would letting Peter sell it on his own. Mm -hmm. Fine, great. Okay, but but that creates a disincentive for Peter and team mm -hmm. <laughs> to go and create the next great product and sell on Amazon because of this problem of of receive and duplicate. So I think I think there's an innovation drag that happens whenever a company the size of Amazon flexes its muscles and steals from I hate to say it, but the mouth that feeds mm -hmm. it. I take that point for sure, and I, I guarantee you this: like we. We have learned throughout the years how to be more exacting with our intellectual property. And I'm not talking about Amazon Basics products. I'm talking about the third-party knockoffs, which also, to be clear, are a much greater problem than Amazon Basics, right? If you've made it to Amazon Basics, like, that's great. That's one person to attack. And you, and you, can, you, can, you can take a look at your IP and say, can we take them down? Otherwise, we're playing whack-a-mole, right? And... Their ability to get fakes and knockoffs and things that are infringing intellectual property across their platform, this is where Amazon needs to do better. They're not terrible right now, but they need to do better in that regard. 
and they've established a whole counterfeit crimes unit. The question is how much of this is real versus PR? We've got a couple minutes left here. I'd love it if both of you would give me your key takeaways. What would you want folks to know, Peter, based on your experience and Jason, based on your experience as well? The issue is I'm super grateful for the platform here to explain at a deeper level, you know, kind of the thoughts going on in my head and Peak Design's head. And I just think that this is just like every other important social issue that we are facing right now. It requires a nuanced discussion. And for anyone out there who's, you know, smashing a like or subscribe button, hearing the first thing that they've heard and having a jive with their preconceived notions, they're not doing enough work to understand things. And so I really appreciate the long form here. You know, uh, Todd, I've never been accused of being nuanced in anything. So, I mean, I, you know, the, th- the one thing that I would like to say is uh, what a wonderful discussion, Peter. Um, what, what it, Andy Jassy, Dave Clark, who's just gotten new positions at Amazon, if you're listening to this, and I hope that you are, Peter and sellers like him are the future of Amazon.com. Please take better care of them. This is not okay. You cannot call these product managers or product developers. If you're going out and copying the hard work and energy and creativity of folks like Peter, you're not really product designers. Do more to protect folks like Peter and your business will continue to thrive. Don't do it and you will continue to see cracks in your armor. I guarantee it. Amen. Jason, I think that's incredibly wise. Amazon's greatest business risk lies in the public perception of them. And I do hope that that message lands on the right ears with Amazon. And I'm also a little bit optimistic that this video, which took this tongue in cheek approach at it, you know, can be received much more thoughtfully than your standard kind of just like whining as it were, you know? So um, maybe some good will come out of it all. Peter Daring, CEO of Peak Design. Thank you very much for speaking with us. My pleasure. Really enjoyed it. Thanks, guys. Jason, let's do this again, shall we? (laughs) Let's do it. Day two. Day two. (laughs) Jason Boyce is a former Amazon seller, co-author of the book, The Amazon Jungle, and the founder and CEO of Avenue 7 Media, an advisory firm working with third-party Amazon sellers. Our guest, Peter Daring, is the CEO of Peak Design, maker of high-quality camera gear and travel bags. You can find out more about them at peakdesign.com. Thanks for listening to the new Day 2 podcast from GeekWire. Be sure to subscribe in your favorite podcast app and leave us a rating and a review. Find more episodes and content at geekwire.com day two. I'm GeekWire editor Todd Bishop. We'll be back soon with a new episode of Day 2.